Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. be here with the rain, listen to the rain. And, um, soft rain. Um, I wasn't going to talk about the rain, but it reminds me of a koan. And um, there's a wonderful koan where uh, a student goes to the teacher and says, um, how do I enter uh, my life? Could you imagine that you were this humble? I think my, maybe some of us have been there, and we, we, we're not maybe sometimes in touch that we've been there, and that we're going to be there again. You say, how do I really enter? Um, I, you know, sometimes I teach in the yoga community during yoga teacher trainings, and I always like coming in at the end of a teacher training when the students are thoroughly confused, have no idea what they're doing and why. And um, how do I really enter? And um, the teacher says, "Do you hear the sound outside the gate?" And uh, the student says, "Yeah, uh huh. That's." Uh, that's the sound outside the gate. It's trying to be clever. Teacher doesn't buy. And the teacher says, uh, well, what's the sound outside the gate? And the student says, oh, that's the sound of rain. And the teacher says, uh, oh, young people these days, always chasing after, follow after things. We know this from the meditation, right? You can hear the sound of the rain, and you can name it rain, and then you've, you've chased it. You know? Oh, young people these days, always chasing after, follow after thing. Everything is a follow after thing when you're chasing. And then the student gets up some nerve and says, okay, well, how would you say it? How would you say it, teacher? And the teacher says, I almost don't lose myself. I almost don't lose myself. This is a very sensitive koan, actually. A very sensitive teaching, I think, because um, some of us, you know, we're good at losing ourselves, actually. Some of us, our work is to become one with the rain. 
And some of us, you know, our work is to actually like come out of that and not to lose ourselves. And last week I talked a little bit about object relations, you know, and I, and I actually think that some of those deeper structures in our disposition kind of inform uh, our proclivity towards oneness. You know, some of us, we can, we can really merge and become one with the rain. And some of us, our work is actually not to lose ourselves. And this teacher's really playing with this double, almost a triple negative. You know, I almost don't lose myself. And um, I actually think this is one of the ways that uh, we practice community together, is to sometimes really be one with the energy of community and receive the support of community. Um, and to give ourselves up sometimes and really uh, work towards the benefit of community. And then sometimes our work is actually to make sure that we're still an individual operating in community and that we haven't lost uh, the core. We almost lose ourselves. And then sometimes we almost don't lose ourselves. And I wasn't actually going to talk about any of this. But, so I'm digressing a little bit. Um, uh, but I, but I, I did want to talk tonight about um, Sangha. And um, uh, sometimes when I, I think about the future in my life of what I would like to really uh, be involved in, it's basically this. And uh, it's not actually that different. Um, I sort of have two images in my mind when I think of community. Um, a couple of people have asked me over the past week, uh, what's your image when you really meditate on center of gravity? It's a really hard question, actually. And I've had two images that come to me. The first image is um, when I was young, uh, my, the person who introduced me to these practices was my uncle. And um, he lived at 999 Queen which I used to always think is 666, upside down. <laughs> and, um, and for me, that was my favorite place to be. And um, uh, they had the most elaborate way of sharing there. So my uncle was extremely generous. He was the only person on his ward who had a little bit of money. Um, his family you know, sent him money every once in a while. And so what he would do is he would take all the money and he would go uh, across the street to the variety store that's still there, and he would buy cigarettes for everybody. <laughs> and, uh, but he didn't just show up with a pack of cigarettes and give them out. It's like they had this elaborate ritual of him like placing the cigarettes on a table, and then people would line up and take one. And, and it was really interesting because no one actually designed the ritual. It just, somehow they came up with this form that was completely absurd, and it also kept everything in control. And, uh, and they did this really quietly, and then everybody sat down and smoked, and nobody talked. <laughs> and uh, they smoked inside, you know, you could smoke anywhere then. And um, I really felt like I was part of a community. It was the strangest thing. I don't know how to, how to describe it. And, um, and then whenever issues came up, uh, the, they would hold these, you know, group discussions that was a kind of therapy.
But then my uncle had this idea that actually they could do better therapy on their own without the nurses. And um, so my grandfather, uh, before he died, he owned a, a farm. And before he died, he sold the farm. Uh, I was, uh, I think, around eight years old when he did this. He, he sold the farm to Canada's Wonderland. Um, and my uncle was so upset. He had never been to this farm, actually, but he was so upset that someone was going to build an amusement park. And uh, so uh, he decided uh, that he was going to get everybody together uh, to talk about this so that he could go to his father to ask him for more money so he could buy cigarettes for everybody. And this was like, so they had a big meeting about this, like how he should talk to his dad so he could buy cigarettes and... I could tell you many more stories. But, but actually, as a kid witnessing this, it was like this self-organized system. Um, uh, and you didn't know who kind of was in control, really. And um, I loved the way they helped each other. And nobody thought about helping one another. It's just how they operated. You know, It's like when you go out to the country and if you're in a real community, people will shovel your snow. Because that's just what you do if the person hasn't shoveled their snow yet. Not like here where you snicker at them. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then the other image that I have is, you know, from this summer of a police car burning. And all the different ways that uh, a burning police car came into our imagination, came into our bodies, and created or constellated or crystallized different viewpoints. And how I felt like at that time, in the yoga world especially, there was no sophisticated discussion about what a burning police car uh, means. And in the 1960s, when the Vietnam War started and was escalating, one of the... Uh, uh, main nuns, who was a student of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, sat down as a protest, poured gasoline over her, and lit herself on fire. And I think many of us have seen, this is one of the most famous sort of uh, images in Time magazine of somebody on fire, but I think a lot of us don't, didn't know, or maybe many of you don't know, that this is actually uh, one of the... Uh, uh, main disciples of Thich Nhat Hanh, who at that time was um, Martin Luther King nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And their commitment was to nonviolence. And I thought that this image of uh, this woman on fire, which is, uh, I, I think, creates more intensity than a police car on fire, um, for me, they're related. Because at the time, in the Buddhist world, there was a really sophisticated and complex discussion about what this image means in our imagination. And so one of the ways I like to think about Sangha is that we're supporting ourselves in practice, and the practice is inward, but it's also outward. And that we're creating a community that is engaged in our culture in a way that when we see a police car burning, we can have a discussion about that. We can participate in that. We can explore different viewpoints. And we can self-organize to respond to images like that. 
without needing to come down quickly on one side or the other, but to really be able to explore all the facets of that. Um, so I'm just speaking personally, you know, in a way, like, so this week, these are the images. Uh, the heart of a mental institution, um, and on the other side of the city, a, a burning police car. And when I'm honest, this is actually my image of center of gravity. And uh, it seems kind of strange, I think, because it's supposed to be like a really nice kesu and, you know, very good cushions and everybody in rows and bowing, and you know, uh, standing on their heads and so on. Um, but I guess what I'm interested in is the power of shared attention. That when we really bring our attention to something, I think we come together uh, as human beings. And you know, at the core of the Buddha's teaching is mindfulness. That when we're really attentive to how things are in our own life, when we're really attentive to our suffering, we become attentive to other lives. We become attentive to the suffering within and around us. And a lot of people suggest that the Buddha was not political. But actually, the, the Buddha's politics is that the self, moment by moment, is a political self. Because a self that is attentive is a self that is interconnected, that is interdependent, that is not cut off and atomized and kind of like hemmed in or frosted in by these stories. And so this coda that you hear a lot of letting go, letting go, letting go, this practice of letting go of fixed views is what opens us up to community, to our neighborhood, the neighborhood that's inside of us, and also uh, the fact that we are not so many moves away from a cop car, or a cop car on fire, or the bank in the background, or the young people beside the cop car, or on top of the cop car. Um, we're all embedded in that image. In the same way that our body is always grounded. And I think as a community, I think it's possible that we can uh, work simultaneously internally and externally. And I wanted to read this little passage. This is from a wonderful article by Richard Ryok. Um, the Buddha was a social radical a social transformer. After attaining enlightenment, he crisscrossed northern India teaching. He established communities that were alternative social models to the caste society he grew up in and was destined to rule in. But in the Buddha's society, you took a vow. Part of that vow was that you wouldn't refer to what your previous caste had been. Men and women started wearing robes and shaved their heads so they wouldn't be distinguished by the traditional marks of gender or wealth. This is the reason for shaving your head and putting on robes, is to become ordinary. You know, in North America, if you wear robes, you're special. But in most other countries, you put on robes and you're ordinary, you know. Um, they went out and they begged for food from every class scandalizing the Brahmins by mixing food from Brahmin households in the same bowl with food from the untouchable households. 
And when the monks walked along the dusty roads in their bright saffron gowns, they were a walking advertisement for a completely new way of living. Now meditation is part of that change, but it goes hand in hand with it, not before and not after. Ultimately, from the point of view of the Dharma, at least my understanding of it, cultivating your mind through meditation is also social and political radicalism. But if the goal is to produce more people who are manifesting the attributes of enlightenment, namely wisdom and compassion, then that by necessity is a transformation of the social social situation as well. Does this make sense? You know, someone asked Trungpa Rinpoche once, they were in San Francisco, there were 300 people in a room, there's transcripts of this really good talk, and uh, they said, well, how is sitting meditation social action? And he said, there's 300 people in a room and no one's doing anything bad right now. (laughs) (laughs) Which I found really (laughs) inspiring. Um, So I think that actually one of the most... uh, dangerous uh, uh, attributes that happen when we're not paying attention and we're not fully engaged in our lives is indifference. Is indifference. And I think actually post-police car burning, the thing that made me more upset than anything was just indifference. Not being able to move into a conversation Uh, about that, to feel that. Um, And in the precepts course, one of the the, uh, um, meditations that we're working with is letting the precepts be your eyelashes. This is a nice little motto you can use. So that our commitment to nonviolence, our commitment to honesty, is not an ideology that we impose on this situation and this situation, but rather it's just like our eyelashes. You kind of know it's there. Sometimes you can see them. We thought of having like um, uh, nonviolent mascara that you could put on in the morning. It would be like you know, some, like an art project. There'd be this mascara that was like nonviolent mascara. You could have a kind, you, could, you know, you could have all the Brahma Viharas in there, and um, and you sort of see the world through the eyelashes, which are soft and spread out. They cover the inside, the peripheral vision, and these are the precepts that sculpt us. And then uh, we slowly, over time, become the practice. And then the practice becomes us. The whole practice becomes just how you conduct yourself, how I conduct myself. And this becomes the heart of what we do. So the reason why I'm saying all this is a kind of segue, because I promised I was going to talk about the future of center of gravity. And I don't know what the future of center of gravity is. And in fact, when Stephen Batchelor was here, he suggested that actually we give center of gravity an expiry date. Because he said, you know, every community goes bad. So he says, why not just put an expiry date on now? 
and then you know when it's going to end, and then you can just do something else. And you had like a golden era, and then it's done. And then you can. And I really like this idea. Um, Frank Gehry said exactly the same thing about the World Trade Centers when they wanted to rebuild them, which is, uh, you know, architecture is designed to end at a certain point. So a building comes down, it's done. You don't rebuild it. You just leave it alone. You think of something else for the space. I don't know if anyone's listening to him. About that. Um, we've built a remarkable community here. And it basically started in a garage in Parkdale because uh, the way that I wanted to teach couldn't happen in a yoga studio. When I tried doing it, I got fired, actually. And I like reminding myself that I actually got fired uh, from my only yoga studio job. Uh, <laughs> anyways, that's a whole other story. Um, um, and we've built a community, and we've grown with the community, and actually we've become grown-ups. Really. And, uh, and, and it's really wonderful. And so um, this idea that center of gravity is going to expand, I think, is really the wrong way to talk about what it is that we're planning. Um, what we'd really like to do is to have a space in this neighborhood where we can have meditation practices every single day. So you could come early in the morning we would chant, we would sit, we would have walking meditation, another period of sitting, all in silence, and then you start your day. Um, to have some asana classes, once a day, um, probably not a lot more than that, so it's not going to look like a yoga studio on the schedule. Um, and then also in the evenings, uh, we're planning on having a um, Buddhist studies on Monday night. So Monday evening there would be an asana class, and then afterwards we've asked some uh, scholars and Buddhist teachers in Toronto if they would each take a month and come four Monday evenings in a row and just teach uh, uh, a, a primary source material. So we would study, you know, Nagarjuna or Dogen or the Buddha's uh, canon uh, with hopefully a scholar. And uh, this would be uh, every Monday night. Uh, Tuesday nights would look the same. Wednesday night, we're going to have a, a beginning med meditation class um, and then an asana class. We have all kinds of wonderful people who are offering to, to teach. And, um, and then we also want to have on Sunday mornings a family program. So uh, the way it works is we would maybe divide the space in two. So uh, you come in with your kids, and if you don't have kids, you come also and you help. And um, we all sit in a circle and we do a little meditation practice together that's kind of fun for everybody. There's lots of really great ones you can do with kids. And then we split up. The kids go play together, and then the adults talk a little bit together about parenting from a, a mindful perspective. And we're done in an hour and a half, and uh, it's a way that a family can come and practice together without needing to commit to a belief system or, um, you know, wear <coughs> special robes or something. Mm -hmm. And um, along with having more retreats and urban retreats, um, we're planning on offering some courses for clinicians, for frontline workers, um, uh, programs for people with anxiety and depression and schizophrenia, 
starting to reach populations that uh, maybe don't even know that they need or have never even heard of some of these practices and also the people who work with those populations. So this is kind of the, the beginning of a vision of what we want to do in a new space. Um, we also want to connect more with the art community because so many people in our Sangha uh, are artists and want to do projects related to center of gravity and we want to have a physical space where we can help make that happen. Um, having a speaker series where we have different speakers come in to talk and engage with our community about all kinds of issues. So when a cop car is on fire, we have a place where we can talk about it, where we can learn, where we can debate, and we can have different people come in who uh, have ways of thinking about those kind of issues that maybe we haven't thought about. Um, so it's kind of a community center. It's kind of a university. It's kind of a temple. It's kind of a social service agency. It's kind of art school. And it's also kind of not. Um, and this is sort of the shape. And um, it's been really f interesting because we're applying for charitable status. How to write what we do. And it's really actually quite hard to say because we're almost a religious organization, but we're all an education organization. And it's really interesting to kind of figure out what, what this is. Um, the Buddha never really thought about Sangha as apart from community. That the Sangha that traveled with the Buddha was, was, was community and then would be totally integrated into whatever town they arrived in. And the, the bhikkhus, the monks, the word bhikkhu means beggar, uh, depended on the lay people for support. And I actually think this is a good thing to think about now because I think our quality of generosity and support just, it doesn't exist. You know, most of us, we really think in the profit, profit mentality. You know, I'm only going to give if I can get a tax receipt. You know. um, I think nowadays, you know, we, we think so much about rights. You know, I want a right to space and a right to shelter and a right to being Canadian. And, but we don't think a lot about obligations. You know, when you have rights, you also have obligations. And I think, you know, when we come in here and practice, I actually see that over time, the people who actually then have more commitment to their practice also want to give something too. And sometimes it can be money, because we need to pay the rent. And sometimes it's also just showing up and just supporting other people. You know, maybe even the mentality of, I don't really want to practice tonight, but I know that if I'm there as a body, it will support someone else's practice. And then you come and actually you feel a little bit better. <laughs> and actually no one else wanted to be here. They're just coming for you too. <laughs> So this is the vision for Center of Gravity. And b before I go further, um, um, I just wanted to let you know that we don't have a space yet. Um, a space that we were planning on getting isn't working. Um, so we don't have a space. 
but we're talking to some people about space. Um, and uh, we have uh, uh, a need for support, uh, volunteers, uh, money, and we have some plans in the works for that. And one of the people who's helping organize that is Lori. And you can put your hand up so everybody knows who you are. Um, because I thought that I could, you know, pull this off. <laughs> and, you know, there was not a chance. Um, and uh, when Center of Gravity was small in a garage, we didn't really need other people. I could just kind of show up and teach. And, and, um, but I've recognized uh, to actually have more things going on, uh, it's actually not my strong suit. And um, so in order to focus on teaching, I've asked other people if they'll, they'll help support our sangha. And some people have said yes. So Lori is going to just talk for a couple of minutes about what we need. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so as Michael mentioned, we have an incredible community of writers and artists and performers and dancers and many very talented people. So we were thinking we would uh, put together an evening of celebration. And uh, this evening would be a fundraiser. And uh, I think we're thinking about um, putting it together for the spring. And so this announcement sort of has two parts to it. A, we need people who might be interested in participating by giving a reading or uh, maybe creating some art or donating a photograph that you have or you know any sorts of ideas you have because um, I think it would be possible to have a raffle or a silent auction or a whole bunch of things <coughs> to make this a really incredible evening as well as performances or whatever however way it sort of evolves but it's sort of like let's have a party and let's have a night of celebration, and we can invite everybody we know and let them know how much center of gravity is important to us and how much it's important to the world. So that being said, um, if you uh, have ideas or if you'd like to be part of a team, because we're going to put together a very small group of people, um, maybe four or five people, who want to take this on in terms of organizing it. We need to find out where it's going to happen and put all of this together and organize um, uh, maybe a raffle and a silent auction and um, raise some money so that we can uh, find a new home. Uh, so if you'd like to be on this fundraising team, then um, please talk to me or email me. But also, if you have ideas or you'd like to contribute, like you don't necessarily have to be part of this team, but if you'd like to offer some um, ideas or offer uh, something that you'd like to contribute, then please um, also contact me. And this is going to be ongoing, so I'm sure there will be announcements as we go along. But, uh, you know, with a new home, we'll be able to open the doors to more people and sort of spread the benefits of this practice to um, a greater community and you know, show the world how um, beneficial it is. I was 
I just became a member at the Karma Co-op where I get my groceries now and they have this big sign on the door and it says community is revolution. Mm. And I really feel that about Center of Gravity as well. So you can email me or talk to me tonight. My email is laurie at centerofgravity.org. Um, or uh, if I'm going to leave a little notebook by the door and if you just want to write a little note or write down your email or phone number, then we'll start this process. I think we're thinking about the spring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is just sort of um, to get the ideas rolling. So, that's it. Yeah, so if there's anything you can offer, your time, a piece of art, a service, um, maybe you know somebody who might want to be part of this. A Musicians, yeah. Um, then please uh, um, let Lori know. It would be really helpful for us. Um, the first idea we had was just to give everyone's alms bowls and walk around Forest Hill and Rosedale. Um, go to the TD Bank. And, but... Uh, um, You know, I was talking about the Buddha and, and social action and, you know, the, I, th I think the piece that's so important is that, you know, when the Buddha first started having his, his kind of desire to wake up, it's because he, he looked out at the world and he saw suffering. A any of us can do that. But then the piece I think that was most interesting is then he turned it back on himself and he said... I suffer. And he always did this when he encountered social situations where there was tension or there was there political tension. Uh, this happened a lot. If you ever read the um, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is uh, the chapters when the Buddha was dying, the world was going in the wrong direction. Everything he was working on with his community, uh, there were battles going on, the political... Um, structures around him all fell apart um, and actually the sicker he got the worse things got around him and there's kind of this sense when you read it like everything he was working on completely fell apart his community was splitting uh, all the political spheres around him in his uh, small territory in the larger territory around that everybody was fighting and um, the Buddha always connected it back to his own experience. So to understand how others are suffering, he would try and find that in himself. You know, I think one of the reasons why people like, you know, Freud or Jung's writing is for this reason too. You read Jung's writing on psychosis and you really get a sense that he's gone inward to find um, that psychoticness in himself. You know, one of the exercises I've done with clinicians when we're exploring psychosis is for them to go home and write all week, keep a journal of whenever they've gone into extreme states. And to really get to know that from the inside. So that we're not objective. That we also count the subjective. And I think this is what pra this practice really offers. We're not just an activist community. We're not a religious community. 
we don't value one or the other uh, exclusively. They're totally interconnected. Your inner transformation is cultural change. And we have to participate in both exchanges. So this is the, this is the plan for center of gravity 2.0 or whatever the hip thing is. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, 2.0. Um, does does it, I like saying it though. Does anybody have anything they wanna wanna share? Any questions, comments? I don't want you to come away thinking that there's like suddenly this big expansion is going to happen and we're going to have like Casa Loma <laughs> look down at the city. Yeah? What happened to that housing development that we were talking about before? Did that just fall by the wayside? It's a long story. <laughs> yeah. But that's what happened? Yeah, I mean, a few things happened. One of the major things that happened is um, an electrical panel got somehow put in the center of the room. And uh, the way the design of the room was promised, it's not really turning out that way. So there was kind of an architectural issue that couldn't really be <laughs> manipulated. We were pretty excited about this space. And then there was a site visit and there was an electrical panel in the middle of the room and then it just got more complicated from there. <laughs> yeah. Yes? I was wondering if space fell through. I uh -huh. just wanted to say, it sounds really exciting. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we say more people, it's not like Tuesday night we want 400 people to come. I mean, we're talking about a space just a little bit bigger than this. We're looking for like 1,500 square feet. Um, but what it means is that everyone who's coming here can also participate in more things throughout the week, especially to have a place to come sit with other people. That's the focus. And then not only that, the people who have been here for a while, who've been studying and really training. Um, I talked to a Buddhist teacher today on the phone, and they said, have you married anyone? I said, yep. Has your sangha buried anyone? Yep. Uh, do you have any lifers? Said, what do you mean by lifers? People who are really there for their for life. I said, oh, I think so. <laughs> and uh, so the idea is also to give the lifers some some work. <laughs> that sounds depressing to you, but actually pretty exciting to me. Um. Yeah. And also to use, you know, like the clinicians program that I've taught, we've trained like, someone counted that now 600 clinicians have gone through a program uh, that I've taught two days or more. That's a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists, palliative care workers, physicians. So we want to, you know, take these people who are being educated and sometimes can't offer what they're learning in their institutions um, and give them a place where they can really offer some of these programs. Um, yeah. So it's not like a yoga studio where you're going to get mat storage and a, <laughs> an assistant. 
Any other comments or questions? Okay, well, hopefully it'll be a lineup to talk to Lori at the end of class. Um, so let me just conclude by telling you a little bit about what's happening over the next few weeks. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to go uh, teach in Denmark, and then I'll be in Austria. So I'll be away. Uh, next Tuesday night, um, Karina is going to be teaching the Asana class, and uh, Pat Smith is going to be teaching the uh, uh, second class. I don't even know what we call it. Um, yeah, we have a new... Yeah, you, now only we're letting doctors teach, that's it. So you get two doctors. <laughs> next, <laughs> Dr. Karina and Dr. Pat. And... Um, um, uh, Pat, for some of you, if you don't know, uh, has been studying with me for many years. She's in the mentorship program with Norman Feldman and Molly Swan and myself. Um, uh, Pat is a physician, and she's done a huge amount of work in uh, the pro-choice movement. She's an abortion provider. She does amazing work with the United Nations. Um, and uh, great work exploring the relationship between abortion and nonviolence. Um, so she is able to hold paradox in a really fabulous way. And uh, it's really great to hear her teach. Um, and she's actually going to be teaching on the hindrances. Um, so if you have hindrances, they're pretty popular. <laughs> People don't like to talk about how many they have. But she's going to talk about all of them next week. And then the week after is November the 30th. And on November the 30th, uh, uh, the poet laureate of Parkdale, um, Aaron Robinsong, uh, and uh, Sarah Selecki, what do you call her, Giller nominee, um, uh, and myself, we're going to have a poetry night. So this was like one of the most popular nights last spring where the three of us uh, will lead a meditation and then we're going to uh, read some of our favorite poems, mostly written by us, um, um, to help inspire you in your practice. And that was such a fun time. Last year, about half of you were there. And it was an amazing night. Um, so, and then that takes us to December and we go right to Christmas. A few more, a few more weeks which will be more structured than this. We're going to have themes. <laughs> uh, so, um, I also just want to mention, you know, when I'm away, uh, it's really important that you still come. Um, there's so much we can learn from each other. And um, so I hope that my being away will still um, inspire you to be here. Actually, whenever I come back, people say it was a better... <laughs> evening. Ronit had us do this and Ronit had us do that and grant this and grant that. Um, and I'll, so I'll be back in time for November 30th. The plane's going to land right here in the <laughs> Almost. So let's finish chanting.